from New York City. This is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. And before we begin, I should say that now we have something in addition to the regular show, and that is our Slate Plus segment. And that's an extra segment that you get when you become a member. You can become a member of something else, which frankly helps me and the podcasters and writers do the work that we try to do and where you don't have to listen to the ads. And there's a Facebook group if you want to join that. You can't listen in to the Slate Plus segment online. You have to subscribe to it at slate.com slash lexicon plus. It's only $35 for the first year. Again, that's slate.com slash lexicon plus. Today, I have a special guest. And no, I don't have guests much lately because I like just doing it myself. But there are times when you need somebody to join you. And Gaston Doran is the author of Babel, which came out in December. And I want all of you who listen to my show to read not my books, but I want you to read Gaston's book, Babel. (laughs) It's Babel Around the World in 20 Languages, because frankly, it's better than my books. And it really scratches a lot of the itches that a lot of you have, the sense that I get a lot of you have from what you write to me. And basically what Babel is, is 20 languages described lovingly in ways that will keep you from ever turning your face from the page. And so I'm just going to open it right up here because I have Gaston here with me. Gaston, Vietnamese, Korean, Tamil, Turkish, Javanese, not Japanese, but Javanese, Persian, Punjabi, Japanese, Swahili, German, French, Malay, Russian, Portuguese, Bengali, Arabic, Hindi, Urdu, Spanish, and Mandarin. Why are these important languages? I chose them because half the world population speaks these languages as a mother tongue and between 75 and 90 percent of the population speaking them as a second or third or fourth language. So how many languages are there in the world? Ah, you hear the figure 6,000 a lot, some say 7,000, you hear 10,000, you hear 5,000 and you hear that we will only have 500 left in a couple of decades, but I think it's about 6,000. Come to think of it, you speak a a non-standard dialect of Dutch in addition to standard Dutch, don't you? That's right. We even claim that it's a regional language, Uh the the Limburgish language, Mm -hmm. which is different enough for other Dutch people not to understand it. And it has very peculiar characteristics. So I'm modestly proud of it, let's say. (laughs) I mean, in the sense that Limburger is really, if you roll the dice again, if the lines on the map were drawn differently, that's a different language in a way than Dutch. Or am I overly exoticizing it? That's right. Yeah, Limburg, it's, Limburger is interesting. I think in America, now I'm going to get all these letters from people about, I like Limburger cheese, but I think that <laughs> Limburger cheese is known to most of us as something that's considered evil smelling in old Hollywood cartoons. Like somebody yeah, bring out Yeah, actually, it's cheese. from a different Limburg. It's not even from the Limburg where I come from. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so I can't even use that as a way of transitioning from Limburg dialect to, for example, this is what gets me about you your books, you manage to say interesting things about any language that you run into. You did the same thing in lingo around Europe in 60 languages. All 60, you managed to be interesting. For example, Korean. I think Korean is a glorious thing, but if somebody said, okay, talk about Korean for a half hour, I'd have to think, well, what would I tell people? And what you come up with is to focus on the idiophones. What is an idiophone? It's not all that easy to give a simple definition. Mm -hmm. One kind of idiophones that we are sort of familiar with are 
onomatopoeias, words like meow, which means mm-hmm. the cry of the cat in English, or the word for cat in Vietnamese. But in Korean and in several other languages, it has a much wider field of activity, so to speak. They have all these words that convey not just sound, but also other types of sensory perception, Mm -hmm. things that you perceive with your eyes, your nose, your skin, and even mental sensations. Mm -hmm. And it may work in several ways. For instance, words ending in K in Korean sound abrupt, and words sounding in L sound sort of smooth or flowing. Mm -hmm. And their meanings often correlate with that. Now, interestingly, this is an example that I'm giving you, which actually also works in English and other European languages. Words like uh, smack Mm -hmm. or roll have these same qualities. But in Korean, it's much more extensive and much more systematic. And it's thousands of words that you can find in the dictionary. And they, the speakers, are aware that these are idiophones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard that said of Japanese, too, and that you're not really speaking the language unless you master all these words that are the equivalent of, for English speakers, things like pow and kaboom and and things like that. You mentioned one in the book. There's there's an idiophone, kamgam. Actually, I prepared for this uh, show, I had prepared the word pingo, which is in the same list. Use it. So there's pingo, which refers to a circular movement. And then there's pingo with a tense P, which refers to a faster movement. Hmm. And then there is pingo with a additional whiff of air after the P, aspiration, (laughs) which has a somewhat different meaning again. And actually, there are three more. There's also pangle and pangle and pangle. Mm -hmm. And they all have meanings that Korean speakers are familiar with, that they either know or they can figure it out because there is system to this whole thing. And that is where they really leave us behind because we don't have that in any way. Not nearly as much. And you also mention, and it's always the way you pull the camera out, that around the world, the sounds ul and n, or if we want to say the letters l and n, often Mm -hmm. correspond to certain body part concepts. What what does ul tend to mean or refer to disproportionately? It refers to the lip. Throughout the world, there is a disproportionate number of languages that have an l, the ul sound, in their words for Lip. I mean, English is an obvious example. So is Latin with its, uh, what was it again, labio, I think. Yeah, yeah. That word is always a little bit awkward because what it translates into in English is, is very private. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, and actually that's also called lips in my uh, Dutch language, what yes. you're referring to. <laughs> an easier example perhaps then is the N sound, hmm, which is often part of the word for nose as in English. Oh, and calm. again, as in Latin, where it's naso, uh, which we find in nasal. And that's probably the case because it is a nasal sound to begin with. You you push the air through the nose. And in the second place, the tip of your tongue points toward the nose, up. I mean, okay, Okay. there are three nasal, uh, at least three nasal consonants, the n, the m, and the Mm hm. And of those three, the n is the only one where the tip of the tongue sort of reaches towards the nose. Of course, it stays within the mouth, obviously, (laughs) but it goes in that direction. And that sounds silly. I know it sounds silly, but you might consider that as a gesture, as a mouth gesture. Mm -hmm. And when we make hand gestures, we are often not aware of what we're doing. And when we make mouth gestures, we're not aware either. But the funny thing is, while we do it, we influence the sound that we are producing. So we might very entirely unconsciously be producing a mouth gesture by 
pointing the end towards the nose. We might. I don't say we are, but we might. <laughs> we very much might. And you know what song I'm going to use, folks, for this? We're going to use Betty Boop. And the reason is that in <clears throat> Betty Boop's ancient cartoons, the theme song actually included idiophones such as Boop Boop A Doop. And so listen to the lyrics of this opening of the Betty Boop cartoons, which I recommend. And this is 1932. And listen to all these idiophones. Uh, hot go. Sounding hot and blue. But a do you hear those little idiophones? And actually, listen to other versions of it, and it's even more idiophony. And so, for example, in some of them, it's an auto horn can go, but an auto horn can't. You have more. Those are idiophones, but we don't talk like that. But in Korean, to an extent, they do. But here's another one Punjabi. Punjabi is one of the biggest languages. I think Punjabi is wonderful. And God knows what I would say about Punjabi for 10 pages. And yet, you talk about Punjabi having a musical quality. What did you mean? I mean that Punjabi is a tonal language. I think you've talked about tonal languages on the show quite a Here few times, there, yeah. haven't you? Yeah. And I've used Punjabi for this rather than Chinese or Mandarin, which is the poster child for tonality. Mm-hmm. But that's boring. I try to avoid that sort of thing. <laughs> it is. Ma, and ma, Pun- ma, ma. Yeah, that gets tired. Exactly, exactly. And the other interesting thing is that it's only become tonal quite recently after its current spelling was developed, which was, if memory serves, in the 16th century. Hmm. So we can still trace the origins of tone in Punjabi and we can see it reflected in the spelling in in an unexpected way. But for linguists, it has really been an excellent language to study this. Mm -hmm. Tonogenesis. And it happened like 10 minutes ago. Amazing. And so these tones have developed because these languages, Punjabi is part of the Indo-Aryan gang like Hindi and... um, and all of a sudden, I can't name any of the others. Hindi, Gujarati, Marathi, Bengali. and the gang. Bengali, and you know, languages like that that nobody yeah, speaks. Yeah, it's the only one that is tonally in that gang. <laughs> and it's only Punjabi, right. Exactly. By the way, folks, I know that many, many, many people speak Bengali. There's a chapter on this one, too. I was trying for wit and failing. But yes, Punjabi is the only tonal one, right? That's right. The tonality, the tone, has come about probably in very much the same way that it came about in Chinese and Vietnamese and several African languages, many African languages. But in those cases, we cannot see that happening. It wasn't 10 minutes ago. It was like an hour ago. And that's, <laughs> to, that's way back. So, Gaston, can I give you my version of somebody asking a question? This is going to be a little boy is asking you. So, uh, Mr. Doran, Mr. Doran, can I ask you a question? Uh, whispering. If, if the language has like like tones, then then how, how, how do you whisper in it? How do those people whisper? Actually, tone is more than just pitch, and they pull it off. They actually do it because the tones that go up are also different in other ways. They might be a bit longer or they might be a bit creaky, and the ones that go down may have a bit of a question quality or maybe shorter, etc., etc., so to a native speaker, the tone, which is absent, will still be clear. Mm-hmm. And that works in Chinese, and that works in Vietnamese, and it works in Punjabi. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, here is an example, folks, of what I mean by how Gaston can make anything sound interesting. You know that factoid that Switzerland has four languages and, you know, there's French, German, Italian, and then there's that other one that we in the United States never meet anybody who speaks and it's called Romance. Well, once again, I find Romance interesting from my sort of, you know, on the spectrum-ish little kid who loves things that nobody else loves perspective. Here is how Gaston <laughs> deals with Romance. This is just one, one paragraph out of many. He says, so where does this leave Romance? Well, the situation is complicated. Romance is recognized by the Swiss Constitution and some 35,000 people in the canton of Graubünden speak the language, but in forms that vary from valley to valley. Even a simple word like I varies from eu to ya. How nice is kebel in one dialect, chebi in another. The upshot is that Romance speakers from one village have great difficulty understanding villagers who live just a few kilometers away. Had all these dialects not been so isolated for centuries, they would have been absorbed into bigger languages. Had they had their own city to act as a cultural center, they would have combined into a single language. Instead, they remain today what they always have been, splinters of the broken picture once called Latin. That's just one of those places where I always think, I wish I had written that, but I didn't. You did. That's from <laughs> lingo. But in Babel, that leads to a question. You know how there's Indonesia? You you do know. Now, in Indonesia, it's one of those places where you're looking all over the world. There are these big, fat Western European languages spoken where they don't belong, such as in the United States, where English is spoken. And therefore, here I am speaking English. Why? Well, you go to Indonesia and the big language is Indonesian. And yet, if I may, the Dutch spent some time there, like the Portuguese and did various you know, things that made people uncomfortable, including imposing language. How come Dutch isn't the language of Indonesia today? The main reason is undoubtedly that there was an excellent alternative, namely Malay, which was in the 20th century standardized and nationalized under the name of Indonesian. And it has a very long tradition of being spoken throughout the archipelago as a, as a lingua franca, as a trade language. And it had even been used by the Dutch colonial administration as a language of contact with the Indonesians. Also, Malay uh, was similar enough to most other languages spoken in that big country to make it easy to learn for nearly everyone. Indonesia was really lucky in this respect. They had this candidate. So it's not just that they didn't want Dutch. I think most former colonies didn't want a European language. Mm -hmm. But in the case of Indonesia, there was an alternative which was not so easily available in Cameroon or Pakistan. Or right. Actually, there is one other country in, my, in a very similar situation, Tanzania in Africa, hmm. where Swahili takes all these same boxes, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, it is a trade language. It is spoken by a smallish group, and it has replaced uh, the language of the former colonizer of, of Britain. Mm -hmm. Actually, there is a question, though, because in Indonesia, you can talk about all the islands that, you know, are not really terribly well known beyond Indonesia, but Java is like the size of a galaxy. I mean, that is a huge <laughs> island, and oddly enough, only three languages are spoken on it. One of them, so counterintuitively, is Javanese, and Javanese is very widely spoken, at least 
on Java and to a point beyond, why didn't they use Javanese? One reason is that Java is very dominant within Indonesia. It's culturally dominant, it's politically dominant, economically, numerically. And the leadership at independence, or early 20th century actually, decided that it was, for the sake of national unity, it was better to choose a smaller language so that the other people would not say, ah, it's mm. always the Japanese, we don't mm. like that language, we want to split up, we start a civil war, etc., etc. Right. That is one thing. The other thing is that the Japanese language was quite strongly disliked by other people, partly because it's pretty hard to learn it well. Actually, even for Japanese, it's not all that easy because it has these very complex codes of formality and respect. And when trying to explain what that means, I always think it's like having to distinguish between calling you John or Mr. McWhorter or mate or sir, except that it's mate. a billion times more, no, well, 1,000 times more complex than that. Right. It's not just forms right. of address. It's also loads and loads of other things. Mm-hmm. Or also, it would be like having to distinguish between to sup upon, to dine, to eat, to chow down upon, to stuff your face, to munch, etc. Correct. Except that these words can be chosen quite freely. And in Japanese, there are very strict codes. And if you do not adhere to these codes, if you do not obey them, you sort of make a make an error. It's like yeah. a almost like a grammatical error. Yeah, you don't smell good. And it's interesting because Javanese grammar per se, in terms of what we think of as grammar as blinkered Westerners, it's not really that bad. You go through it and you think, well, is that really all you have to know? But it's all of this honorific stuff that makes it maddeningly difficult. You get a good sense of that from your chapter, as you do also if you change a consonant and say Japanese. <laughs> And Japanese is not related. You knew I was going to do that. But it's interesting. What about Japanese and how to talk like a lady? Like, what is it? What is that? It was quite hard for me to wrap my head around and to believe it. But in Japanese, there is actually this long history of slightly separate varieties of the language for men and for women, of a gender lect, as linguists like to say. It's no longer as present as it used to be, let's say, 40, 50 years ago, because, well, there's been feminism and uh, Japanese women have fought for their linguistic freedom. and They want to use these girly words and always be good. But still, uh, even in present day Japan, men can use this as a weapon against women, putting them in their place in inverted commas by saying, you are not talking ladylike. It happens. Mm-hmm. And even today, there are still books where Japanese women can read how to use language to be more successful and loved, etc., as a woman. <laughs> that has no counterpart in, in European languages, I think. No, I mean, in English, it's been said that, you know, for example, women are more likely to know a lot of terms for colors, like cerise and, and <laughs> aquamarine. But I know those words, and I don't think I'm a woman. And they're various, you know, very subtle things. The study of language and gender is always interesting. But it seems like it's starker in Japanese. What's one example of like women's Japanese as opposed to men's Japanese where you're not supposed to jump the fence? An example uh, would be that women are expected to or are supposed to add a prefix to many words. They should not say bread. They should say, oh, bread. Of course, I'm now trying to mix <laughs> Japanese and English, right? Or they should say water. They should say, oh, water. They should oh, add this oh prefix. Right. 
uh, which and makes it sound feminine. more cultured, more, well, more ladylike. Right. And also with what are known as uh, modal particles, these small words that Japanese and also German has a lot of, which express sort of an attitude or an emotion, etc. Men and women really use different ones there. And the male ones are more macho, are more rough and tumble, and the female ones are more refined. And that's what they're expected to use. So it's not only that Japanese has the world's most complex writing system. It's not only the Japanese grammar, unlike Javanese grammar, and the languages are not related, has its complexities and challenges. But also there are these gender differences where if you don't observe them, then you sound either like a machine or a jackass. This stuff is tough. And here's the song that we're going to use to illustrate Javanese and Japanese. It's like you can speak the same language, except it's a different language depending on who's speaking it. This is from a long-lost Broadway musical called Texas Lil Darlin from 1949. The protagonist was a Democratic senator with a drawl and an attitude. And frankly, given you know a lot of the racial attitudes that person would have had, nobody wants to see this musical anymore. It is not available for performance, but it was given a cast album and some of the songs are quite cute. One of them is called The Yodel Blues, and I dare you not to walk around singing this for the next two weeks. And it's about these sorts of difficulties in good old English. This is the Yodel Blues singing our Mary Hatcher and Kenny Delmar, whose character in this and on the radio was one of the bases for Foghorn Leghorn, the Looney Tunes character, for those of you who care. They talk a different language. They speak a different brand. Where we'd say plum delighted, they always say how grand. We say your thing's real pretty. They call the same thing chic. Why, you may as well be talking Italian or Greek. Oh, the old load, 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 the old the old one other thing. What was Ottoman Turkish? Turkish is a language. Then there was Ottoman Turkish where something had gone a little odd. Yes, yeah, very odd, yeah. It was a very strange beast. And, and, and in some ways, <laughs> at least two ways, it was a bit like English in that it had loads of words borrowed from other languages, in this case, mostly Arabic and Persian. And it also had some grammatical traits that originated there. But a huge difference with English is that Ottoman Turkish was nobody's mother tongue. It was a bit like Esperanto or, or like Latin in medieval Europe. It was purely an elite lingua franca, which was used at the court in, in literature, in religion to a certain extent, but not at all spoken by ordinary Turkish people. What was the Turkish stable boy speaking, the, the Turkish person who's washing somebody's dresses? What, what were they speaking? They did speak Turkish, but that was known as coarse or crude Turkish at the mm. time. And it was only after the Ottoman Empire had collapsed and the Turkish Republic had been established that Something based on that stable boy, <laughs> Turkish, was declared, the they wouldn't call it that, was declared the official language. Yeah. But it didn't stop there. Mm -hmm. It did turn to the vernacular, but even that had lots of Arabic and Persian in it and other loan words. And the new leadership strongly disliked it. So 
between, say, the 1930s and the 1960s, Turkish went through a several periods of fairly wild purism of language purge, destabilizing the language for, well, the best part of two generations. Mr. And, Ataturk was responsible for uh, this. Ataturk began it, but of course he died fairly soon. And then the ones who succeeded him, there was a, a certain institution which really made it its life's work to change the Turkish language, and they succeeded, and they were very radical in that respect. What did they do to it? What they mostly did was replace thousands and thousands of words and either create new ones or borrow from dialects or from closely related languages. But the funny thing is, or the tragical thing, is that during this period, the language was really unstable. People had trouble keeping up with the language. And there were even periods when people reading the newspaper really had to think, wait a minute, what word that I know has been replaced here? Mm -hmm. I don't think any other country has gone through such a radical purism um, episode. Mm -hmm. No, and the way you tell the story in the book just keeps you going like potato chips, as well as the story of Persian. For those of you who want to know the story of Persian, there are all sorts of things to be said. And Gaston actually gathers various sources written in various languages and tells the story in a readable way in a fashion I'm not sure I've seen anywhere else in terms of its breadth. And so I highly recommend it. Gaston, I want to ask you one more thing. This language yep. that you and I are speaking right here, is English going to eat up every other language in the world? Not likely. Not likely. I mean, English and other big languages are eating up many smaller languages, of course. But I expect that hundreds of today's languages will survive, either in official capacity or as lingos for informal use in daily life. And actually, that could be a big game changer if interpretation technology, translation technology, becomes as good, as perfect as engineers make us believe it will. They're not quite there yet. So I will say that if this happens, it will have a great impact. And those engineers will say when it happens, it will have a great impact. <laughs> but I think once people can use devices, software to speak English by just speaking their own language into a microphone and having the other person hear English, they will stop learning English. And the threat, in inverted commas, of English becoming the only language in the world will be gone forever. I think more people ought to know that. I must admit that I'm not looking forward to that time because then we can't be people like you and me who like to try to teach ourselves other languages for no particular reason. <laughs> that just won't make any sense anymore. But yes, it's clear that that time is going to come. And that means that this ugly thing I'm speaking right here will not eat up the other 6,999 languages in the world, well, including yours. Speaking Go a ahead. language, a second language will always have advantages, but it will no longer be the purely practical instrumental advantage that it has today. It will be more of a cultural thing. I mean, a device will always be in the way. It will always be a time lag of a few seconds. It will be awkward. It, it will never be fun, like mm -hmm. speaking a foreign language is fun, and that machine will not be fun. No, no, not at all. But it'll be useful. Well, Gaston, thank you so much for coming on to the show and telling well, thank us. Thank you about for having me. Babel. 
Everybody Needs to Buy Babel Around the World in 20 Languages by Gaston Doran. And after you read that, you're going to want to read Lingo Around Europe in 60 Languages, where he actually manages to say interesting things about all 60 of the languages in Europe. I know nobody who can do this like Gaston, and I highly recommend the books that he's written. Gaston, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, John. Thank you. She's the girlfriend of the whirling dervish. She's the sweetest one he's found. But every night in the mellow moonlight, while he's out dervishing with all his might, she gives him the run around. All the boyfriends of the whirling dervish are his best friends to his face. But there's no doubt when he isn't about, they all come hurrying to take her out. She leads him a dizzy pace. He dreams of a Hindu honeymoon. He doesn't dream that every night when he goes out to make an honest rupee, she steps out to make a lot of whoopee. The love song of the whirling dervish has a sweet and tender sound. But will he burn if he ever should learn? While he's doing her real good turn, she gives him the run around. And speaking of whirling dervishes, wait, wait till you see how how this goes. Dervish, ish. Remember on the last show when I talked about that weird little word, ish, I played that radio show, Vic and Sade, and the people are sitting on the porch, and the woman says, ish, ish, when she wants the other guy to stop talking. Well, you know, I asked you guys whether you had heard anybody say ish, and it is really fun how this hive mind podcast internet thing works, because I think we have found out what that ish is. You can't find it in dictionaries or online, but I think we have figured it out. So the idea is that someone is talking about something maybe a little off-putting. That's something I missed from the context in Vish and Sade. It's not just be quiet. It's stop talking about that crushed armadillo you found on the road, or stop talking about how when you pull a hair out, sometimes that there's that little stuff on the bottom, kind of ish, not ick, not icky, but you just say ish, ish, that. When someone says that, here's where it comes from. That ish, almost certainly, I'm 95% sure, that ish is from Norwegian, of all things. And it's Michael Feely. Thank you, Michael Feely, for putting me on the path of this. When you first sent me that message, I thought, oh, please. And then I realized, no, wait, with all the feedback coming in, it was exactly right. Ish is something where if you look at a map of all the people who wrote, you can actually you can do a map of these things. There's this vast concentration of people who remember it in Minnesota, and Wisconsin. And of course, that's exactly the area where a great many people from Norway settled not too terribly long ago, and they would have spoken Norwegian. Now get this, not in Norwegian is ikka. Now, ikka, if you let it go long enough, is going to become ish. You start with ikka, then that's going to become something like ikka, and then you get ish. It's kind of like in Gaston Doran's Dutch, the word for I is ik. Then in standard German, it's ich. And then ich 
in many German dialects is ish. Same sort of thing. So Norwegian, ikke, ikke, ish. There you go. And so that not in these immigrants, Norwegian would have become ish. And that would have meant stop talking about that armadillo. Stop talking about that locust plague that ruined the harvest. That's something that they would have talked about. Stop talking about your mucus or something like that. So ish is Norwegian. And it starts out as ikke or ikke or ish. And next thing you know, you've got something that people are saying who wouldn't know Norwegian from their elbow. And it spread beyond there. So the creator of Vic and Said was from Illinois. And I've heard from a disproportionate number of you from Illinois, but then sometimes from even beyond there. So there are people who have been and to an extent still are, but most of you mentioned your grandmothers who have been saying this ish, who have no idea that it started way near the fjords. And so language never stops. It keeps going. It's like Queen, because everybody's talking about Bohemian Rhapsody lately. So let's do what is generally considered one of their best songs. Although, goodness, Freddie Mercury couldn't really sing. Bob Dylan, Donald Fagan, and him. But still, here is Don't Stop Me Now, because you can't stop language. Stop me now. I'm having such a good time. I'm having a ball. You can reach us now at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. And as this semester ends, I'll actually be able to start responding to more of your messages. I promise it will happen. They are stacking up. And by the way, speaking of Michaels, as in Michael Feely, who put me onto this Norwegian analysis, Michael Chelsea is not the person who put me onto Vic and Say. The person's name is David Chelsea. David, I'm sorry about that. But in any case, Mike Volo, and his name is not David Volo, but Mike Volo is, as always, the editor. And I am John McWhorter. Don't stop me. Don't stop me. Don't stop me. Hey, hey, hey. Don't stop me. Don't stop me. Don't stop me.